You're listening to Local Government Insights, a podcast for state and local governments. If you're looking to optimize operations, improve services for your constituents, and maximize revenue without raising taxes, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Local Government Insights podcast, Modernizing Government Leadership, your source and insight for local government technology. My name is Brennan Middleton, and today we're going to be talking about the long-term effects that COVID is having on jurisdictions and beyond the health crisis. So we have two guest speakers today. First, John Russo, founder and principal of Synchronicity. Previously in his career, he spent more than 30 years as a public servant and brings a unique perspective to today's conversation. And as he was a former city councilman, city attorney, and a city manager for more than 11 years for three different cities. So welcome, John. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. And also, I'd like to introduce Fran Mancia, Avenue's VP of Government Relations. Fran's extensive legislative and advocacy experience at the federal, state, and local levels has enabled his team to work with jurisdictions to help them navigate through legislative issues and to protect and grow their revenue tax streams. So Fran, again, thanks so much for being here. Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So guys, let's dive right in. I'm really excited about this conversation. And we all know the pandemic has is, is turned the world upside down for all of us. It's really changed how we work and ultimately live our daily lives. Today, we're going to discuss what, what changes are here to stay and really delve into the impacts of a large remote workforce and really dive deeper into the urban exodus to suburbs, which is very interesting. So we'll also like to discuss the increased demand and expectations for digital service, along with the need for better infrastructure across our local governments. So my first question I have is, is for you, John. People have been looking at the main question of what happens when this pandemic eases? It's going to come to a stop. It's going to, you know, we're going to get back to a new normal, as they say. And we're all trying to figure out what changes are here to stay and how this affects local and state governments in particular. So I'd love to get your perspective on really just what you're seeing happening. Well, first, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here. You know, the main issue with the pandemic is that in politics, Situations such as this, particularly when they're not really situations that governments have prepared for, they're always referred to as a crisis. And a crisis is usually thought to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And then there's a forensic on what happened with the crisis and how do we do better in the future? That's not what is happening here. This is not so much a crisis as it is an inflection point. And you alluded earlier to the issue of remote work. There was already a really strong trend toward increasing remote work, and that was on the demand side from particularly younger people who are professionals who are doing brain work that can be done remotely. What we're seeing now with COVID are all of the other associated all of the other associated impacts. So if fewer people are driving into work, then there's less traffic. So that creates changes in housing patterns. You mentioned the suburbs. That's going to be in play. But I'd say the three major subject areas that cities ought to be looking at and looking to is how and where are people working? How and where are people living? And of course, those are related. And then last, how are public agencies going to be impacted both internally and how their job force is producing the products and the services that the taxpayers expect of them, but also 
what are going to be the revenue impacts and taxation impacts that will flow from the changes in the private sector? Because the change in remote work has accelerated dramatically. Yeah. And just this year alone, there's been hundreds of companies come out, some of the biggest to the smallest, and say, you know, we're remote work indefinitely right? We're going to a remote work setting and you've got that migration of, like you mentioned, the younger generation, but even all generations really migrating to different areas of the country to avoid either higher taxes in the larger cities just so they can you know, have a better lifestyle, so to speak, but they're also making the same income. So that trend is certainly something to your point that we should take note of and realize as we move forward through this pandemic. So Fran, this next one I have is for you. Let's, let's shift and talk about like what are the impacts on work at public agencies and what are you seeing within the work environment within the public agencies? I think that's an interesting question. You know, there's I think we're seeing a variety of different dynamics and it's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Many cities are completely working remotely except for essential services such as police or fire. So they're doing a lot of it, you know, through Zoom calls, meetings of this nature that we're all becoming used to. Others are having staff come in maybe on a rotational schedule, maybe one day or two days a week. I know one client city of ours, the revenue officers in as pay, you know, checks come in, things need to be paid and processed. So we're seeing a variety of things along those along those lines. I think there are some challenges around this, especially if you're trying to get a building permit or need to do some sort of in-person licensing that may not be as a typical type of function, such as just a renewal. So we're having challenges around working through those processes and that can create frustration for citizens as well as the, the public sector. But as a whole, I believe jurisdictions are doing a really good job adapting to the dynamics and candidly the politics in their particular city. It, it varies from place to place. Interesting. Yeah, and we've even had some conversations on on this podcast with various local leaders about the digital transformation aspect and moving all of these records, as you mentioned, the license renewal, moving all these types of activities, interactions with the government online and providing that client or, or constituent facing applications and databases where they can go in and get these types of renewals. That shift is happening kind of in parallel to what we're talking about today. So, Absolutely. You know, there's uh, been... Uh, for years, there's been resistance to allowing governmental employees to work remotely. There's just a political sensibility that starts, unfortunately, and it's it, it's just deeply entwined in our culture, that public employees are not to be trusted. And <laughs> since public employees are not to be trusted, if you don't mark their hours and have them like school children show up at their desks for roll every morning, that they're going to not do the work. And it's a question of trust. Siemens, for example, a private company, Global Fortune 500, over 380,000 employees worldwide just announced last month that from now on permanently, even after the crisis is over, that they expect their employees to work two or three days a week remotely. And the CEO prepared a statement, and the the theme throughout the statement was, we trust our people. We want to give them flexibility. This pandemic has provided a real opportunity. You know the the cliche, never let a good crisis go to waste in government. This has provided an opportunity that will permit public sector agencies to be more competitive with the private sector because you've got three real items in competitiveness when you're competing for talent. One is gonna be, what's your salary? 
Two is going to be benefits. And three is now flexibility of work because people, particularly under 40, value flexibility in a way that people perhaps my age didn't even consider. Right. It's really challenging the foundation of how the operational aspect of both public and private organizations as a whole and how it's been. It's challenging the way we've been doing things forever, it seems like. So it's that's one of the things I'm more excited about than anything is really that trust factor and allowing people to be flexible and their work-life balance is going to be better. They're going to be happier. They're going to feel valued more because they feel trusted by the organization versus someone watching over their shoulder every moment. So this is a great segue, John. Thank you for that. You know, next question I had was really what you kind of alluded to is, is really about the private sector and how the kinds of impacts that are happening there and how that, what that's going to mean for local governments. Well, I'm going to bring up two quick studies that I've looked at. One is a study, and this goes right to the point you were just making. The Boston Consulting Group did a study of 12,000 professional employees worldwide from May to August of last year. And they measured four factors, social connectivity, physical health, mental health, and workplace tools. And they were looking to see were people feeling alienated or having difficulty working from home. And they found but that by a four to one margin, those employees felt that they were much more effective and much more productive working from home. Likewise, when you look at the scope of the issue in the private sector, in December, Vanguard released a study prepared by their chief global economist. And that study looked at United States Department of Labor statistics and conservatively concluded that as that 15 percent of all American jobs, and that's 20 million jobs, could be easily performed remotely. And the nature of those jobs are those are the engineers, the attorneys, the accountants, the people with higher incomes, more disposable income. And that has dramatic impacts now about commuting, about how commercial space is going to be handled in the future, and all of the associated small retail businesses that are attached to those large office buildings and commercial spaces. Amazing. Right. And I think just to add to John's comments, I think we're going to see a, large, a better quality of life if people cannot have to travel and sit in traffic one hour each way to work. They can work from home more remotely. That'll give them more quality time, more rest time. So their, th- their work output will be a lot more improved, whether it's public or private. I think that's a really important piece of the dynamic. But there has to be a balance. And I think that goes back to my point. We have to be sensitive. We don't lose the relationship aspects of work and the collaborative nature of being together under safe protocols, of course. We need to work together to be really creative and make sure we leave the time to do that in the workplace. You know, I think the other thing we're going to see is a big shift in re- real estate. So commercial leases, there's going to be down, potentially downward property assessments. Our office is in Sacramento, and it's very quiet around the streets of Sacramento in the vicinity of the Capitol. Buildings are boarded up. People are not coming into the area. So, you know, what is the long-term impact to the value of commercial real estate and business? To John's earlier point, people are working more and more from home. It becomes more of the part of the protocol but we have to watch for that downward spiral potentially in real estate prices. On the flip side, we're also bringing costs and expenses down for car allowances, paper, ink, printers, things of that nature in this environment. So there's less need for office expansion and expenditures. So it's a, we have to find a right, the right balance is my point. 
Right. And finding that right balance, Fran, is super important because, <coughs> again, to your point on the flip side, not losing that value in the face to face as well, because relationships are so important. And we yep. get so kind of in, in the, the habit of throwing a Teams meeting together or a Zoom meeting together. Right. But when we get on the flip, when we get on the backside of this thing, I think it's, it's important for us all to not forget how important that face to face meeting is when possible. And also when we do have it to value that time and to make sure that it's meaningful and that we take advantage of that face-to-face time because you probably won't have it as frequently as we had before. That's very important because, and just from a logistic perspective, sort of a linear way of looking at this, human trust is based upon personal interaction about body language, about reading people, and so much more of how managers are going to be required to manage when workers are, you know, again, the lawyers, the engineers, the accountants, when they're not in the office where you can see them huddled over their desks and you just have to trust that the work's being done, that trust is a wellspring that has to come from somewhere. So everybody will be challenged. All of the organizations, both public and private, are going to be challenged trying to determine how to strike the correct balance between allowing their remote employees to work remotely against almost compelling social interaction. And how does that work once the pandemic is done? Because, you know, one thing, if you tell people they have to do something, they immediately get spiky Mm -hmm. about it. So how do you make that happen without making it mandatory? How do you get people together in a way that is going to promote the trust that will be absolutely required to make all of this work? And I don't pretend that I have A comprehensive answer to that, I think we're going to see how this evolves in the coming months. Empathy and trust are some of the two biggest takeaways that I've found, just empathy for people and their work-life balances. They're all dealing with different things. And and then the trust aspect is empowering people to do the work the correct way and take a pride in what they're doing and, and do it efficiently. So let's shift gears just a bit here. I'd like to talk a little bit about what does all this mean for like how governments are going to provide the actual services to the constituents. We've talked about the remote. We've talked about people being, you know, not the less of a commute and the dependency upon working in a remote environment. Like what does it mean for governments and how they provide the actual services they provide to the constituents? Well, maybe I'll take a first shot at that. I think we're already seeing a movement towards more and more online services. So administration of taxes is a good example where people are paying their property tax or their business license fee or other license fees via online services. In fact, many cities are actually outsourcing this type of work so they they can free up their staff resources for other priorities. So I think people are becoming more used to seeing, to doing business that way with call centers to take the calls directly. So you can mitigate some of that lost face-to-face protocol in that form. So I think there's a bigger shift in that regard I mentioned earlier property permitting. That's a little bit more challenging because you have large plans and things to do a lot of that online. I think that's an important piece that has to be worked through. So I think we're, we're going to see more and more shifting to online services and public meetings are taking place more and more through Teams or Zoom meetings. And I think that's just going to continue to be the trend. But we can't lose sight of the fact that you have public safety, police, fire, pub parks and rec, those are physical things that you need face-to-face, and you can't do all of that online by any means, and that's the key thing I think that's the highest priority for citizens is that public safety, knowing that people will respond. So that that's the piece that's going to be the most challenging to continue doing, but as long as it's done in a safe manner in the COVID environment, I think we'll, we'll do well. 
So one of the things that's implicated by this is as more and more of the work that government does goes online in terms of licensing and permitting the the items that Fran was just talking about, cybersecurity is going to become much more important. Mm. Now, we've, we've heard repeatedly about cities and states and, and counties. Recently in Washington state, there was a county that was held for ransom by, uh, by a, a cyber attack. As more and more people are performing those tasks online, cities and governments are going to have more and more personal information to protect. And that's going to really make cybersecurity a very front and center item in a way that's difficult politically because politics and, you know, in politics for 30 years, politics Mm -hmm. is all about what can people see, touch and feel. And in terms of the services that are provided, the preventative measures never, almost never get the kind of attention and budgetary allocations that are required. Why is that? Well, it's because, you know, why do you get leaks in the roof of a park recreation center? It's because nobody runs for re-election saying, vote for me. I prevented something bad from happening that never remotely happened. In other words, vote for me. I made sure there was money in the bank to repair the roofs regularly. But on the other hand, every politician that runs for re-election runs with a picture of them cutting a ribbon for some new item, you know, a new a new park, a new park center, whatever that may be. Likewise, with cybersecurity, it's the unseen piece. It's the guts. It's in effect the HVAC system, if you will, of the government. And people don't they don't see that it doesn't interface with them until it goes wrong. And then they're very angry about it. So the politics of that are going to be a challenge. City managers, county executives are going to really have to work this through very, very diligently with their decision makers to explain the consequence of not putting money into cybersecurity. And just to add to John's comments, you know, working with client cities of ours, it's been very difficult for them to have to move their workforce remotely and keep the safety protocols in place and to make sure people are aware of the things they have to do to keep the city's networks or county networks in safe and in functioning properly. There's a, it's a whole lot of work to get that done and very difficult to do when you have people in multiple locations with different computers. There's a temptation potentially to use your computer for non-work things. Things can get hacked. So we have to be I think that's probably the biggest threat in this whole pandemic is cybersecurity and keeping networks safe and people aware, not because they're trying to do something wrong, but something can happen very easily if you're not thinking clearly at all times. So that is a threat for local governments, without a doubt. Wonderful. So I think we would all be remiss, and I would be remiss as a host to not address this next question I have is we've talked about the need and the requirement to go online, accessing the internet remotely, remote workforce. But I would be remiss without asking you guys to elaborate a little bit on the digital divide. Like, yes, it is America and vast majority of us have access to internet, but that's not the case for many. So how does that affect those that cannot and what what are the impacts there? They're huge. By most studies, about 25% of Americans cannot access high-speed internet. Wow. And that is a huge equity question, And but I think there's a political opportunity here. And that is, 
you've got a new administration in Washington that is talking about unity. There's a lot of concern about growing polarization between urban dwellers, particularly urban dwellers of color, and rural America. And interestingly, where Internet access is the most challenged are in rural communities and in what we used to call inner city neighborhoods. That's where you get the dead zones from an Internet perspective. And so this is something that I am hoping that the federal administration in looking at issues to do with infrastructure will not look merely at traditional 20th century infrastructure like roads and sewers and and the power grid, but will also be looking at how to go about ensuring that all Americans are able to participate in the 21st century economy in terms of really, at this point, basic transactions. And we're not even talking today about the impact on education regarding ability to have access to remote learning and what that may or may not mean for people's ability to engage in upward upward mobility. Right. I, I think, you know, the digital divide really leads to an economic divide in the haves and haves nots. One positive thing is I know in Governor Newsom's state budget that he introduced this January is a lot of funding for broadband expansion into the rural areas in inner city. A lot of it is tied to help and give everybody equal access and fair treatment. It also has to do with fire danger and other types of danger. You have to have communications throughout. And especially now with children, talking to education just for a moment, as kids are trying to take classes online, many of them don't have the ability to, to, to reach the Internet to get to get education and therefore that also ties into economics if people are looking for work or trying to work and they don't have good access there's that digital economic divide once again so the positive news is there are a lot of funding to john's point we need from the federal level but also here in california it's it's included in the budget conversations as we go into the next fiscal year cities will find that their ability to compete for jobs is now going to be related to their ability to compete for new homes where people are doing jobs and the ability of those folks to actually work from home. So it comes up in terms of competing for employees. And we all have talked for years throughout the mid to late 20th century about cities, the dangers of racing to the bottom by offering tax incentives and other benefits to businesses in order to locate in a particular city to bring jobs there. But what if the high-end jobs aren't related to offices, but are actually related to homes themselves? What does that mean for land use? What does that mean for the state-local relationship in a state like California, which has a really complicated tax system around property tax shares? All of that needs to be examined. There is a lot on the table, and a lot of it is still in flux. Certainly some interesting points that we should all continue to watch, monitor, evaluate, and do our best to impact in a positive way the governments that we that we all serve on a day-to-day basis. So let's bring it home. We started today about talking about preparing for a post-COVID world. Let's wrap, I'd love to wrap it up by just you know giving some key takeaways from the conversation as we've covered a lot today. What are some of the key takeaways, John and Fran, that jurisdictions can do today? Like, what can they do now to start preparing for this quote unquote post COVID world? Well, I, I think just to start it off, you really have to reevaluate your day to day relationships and how you interact with stakeholders, constituents, your coworkers, 
you know, how can we work effectively in this new environment with less personal contact? We really need to be sensitive to the fact that we go from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting <laughs> to Zoom meeting, and we don't leave ourselves any time to think, reflect, create, to write, provide thought leadership to our teams. We really need to make sure we don't lose sight of all that. I think that's something that I'm most concerned, and we need to keep a balance around. I think cities, particularly, I mean, I know cities, that's that's what mm-hmm. I've done. I would say that they need to really review their, when we talk about stakeholders, as Fran has, to really look at what is the infrastructure in their city with respect to the telecom industry? What is the existing infrastructure? What are the plans for new infrastructure? How are those infrastructure assets being permitted? There's federal law that is highly controlling of local government, but there's also a political underpinning whereby nobody ever wants any infrastructure nearby them. How do you make that work? So that's one. Two is going to be a number of other untouched issues that we haven't even discussed yet, and we don't even know yet what they are. The problem will be for cities that cities are mostly run on rules, because no, there's a, a trust question that we've talked about a couple of times. So people work to the rule. People manage to the rule. Flexibility is viewed with suspicion because flexibility implies you're giving discretion to bureaucrats. And we're going to have to really come up with leadership in the executive suites of these cities that is explaining to the electeds, and explaining to the labor groups why flexibility is now no longer a like to have, but a gotta have. And how do you do that while building trust? I would say to folks that they need to review their work rules. They need to do that in conjunction with labor, in conjunction with their electeds, and they need to review their internet infrastructure, as well as their service delivery over the internet. Fantastic. Well, guys, John, Fran, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. I've had a blast today. I've learned a lot myself. Thank you guys for all of the insights that you provided today. And thank you for all our listeners who join us on the Local Government Insights podcast week in and week out. John, Fran, thank you so much again for our listeners. Stay tuned for more local government news and insights to come. Lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Local Government Insights, modernizing government leadership. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time. This episode is brought to you by Avenue, your state and local government partner. Avenue partners with state and local officials to boost revenue, optimize operations, and deepen community trust. Avenue brings over 40 years of experience working with over 3,000 local governments to bring you the greatest insights. We work alongside your team to find ways to maximize revenue for local governments without raising taxes. Join us today to learn about ways to drive enhanced results for your community. To get in contact with the Avenue team, visit www.avenueinsights.com.